0: Thank you very much. Those of you who took the time, and I appreciate it greatly, to hear the clinical conundrum, that's the antithesis of this talk because here we're going to get into some very, uh, we're going to be in the weeds a little bit, but what's most important is some of the clinical aspects that most people don't realize about central pain syndromes that we're going to be talking about that can help treat central pain, and we're going to talk about six types, and we'll get into that. Nothing to disclose. Learning objectives. Define the major central pain syndromes. Recognize the pathophysiological difference, and we're going to spend some time. And I'll ask you to please forgive me if we get into the weeds with some of the pathophysiology, but it's important. We're going to identify treatment modalities for general and specific central pain syndromes and contrast the different syndromes. Okay, this is George, all right? George came about thanks to Deb Weiner. Deb and I have this thing, she calls me and says, Gary, I want you to do a talk that starts with the shark bites. (laughs) Okay, and after that, I've gotta put something medical after that, so this is George, and basically the shark bites all over central pain syndromes. Okay. How many people here treat central pain syndromes? Okay. How many folks are pain specialists? Just, you no, know, about 50%. Uh, nurse practitioners? Family practice? I am? Super. Okay. Pharmacology? I know the big guy. All right. So the statistics for central pain syndrome really depend on who you read, okay? In this particular Canavero uh, article, he notes, gentlemen, if you look at this, the slides are on one side. They go to, to the left instead of being centered. So if we could fix that so I could read it if I need to. Basically, uh, 10% to 25%. See how it's it's on one side. Sorry, it's wonderful to have experts being able to do this. OK. Bob, as he's finishing, or... Getting on to here. With MS, which is going to be multiple sclerosis, the first specific entity we're going to talk about, you will see that you can go up to 20 to 30%, up to some people, 86% of patients with chronic pain. Spinal cord injury, depending on who you read, again, it'll go up to 80-odd percent. Patients with cancer, about 2%. Okay. It's estimated in the U.S. that there are about 600,000 patients with chronic central pain syndrome. Central pain syndrome is typically also known as central neuropathic pain syndrome. So I'm going to use the terms equivalently. Okay. The only change that we're gonna hear is the title of the, the actual entity and the one everybody nose, which was called Dejerine russi is now chronic or central post-stroke pain syndrome, okay? So, central pain can be a complication of neurosurgical procedures. Many of you who have patients that get neurosurgical procedures, particularly ablations, how many? Okay, and how many of you realize that after that happens, the nerve gets really pissed? Okay, and so after an ablation, typically, you have to do a lot of makeup work. All right. Tumor excision, particularly in the parietal lobe. That's important for reasons we'll talk about later. The brainstem and the spinal cord. uh, Thalmotomies. And chordotomies, among other types of surgery, give us the same issues. Okay, now, the components of central pain. Okay, constant, spontaneous pain. Okay, it's the constant nature is one of the issues that differentiates this. Uh, It's aching, burning, pricking, lancinating, dysesthetic, paresthesias, pruritus, but almost in 99%, it's a combination of all of the above, okay? Bah, bah, bah. And one of the things that... Constant. I'm sorry? You have different types of things. The pain is constant, but as you heard me say, there are different types of pain. You can get lancinating pain in the background of constant burning pain. Okay, and that can be non-evoked. And when we talk about Parkinson's disease, which most people don't know really, have central neuropathic pain associated with the majority of these patients. Okay, so they have different types of pain. So we'll answer your question, Dr. Warwick. Yes. Yes, if they can sleep. This kills quality of life. Okay. Yeah. So the issue is typically, as I said, patients have multiple types of pain. It's associated with various reasons that we're going to get into. Spontaneous intermittent, spontaneous is lancinating pain. Lancinating pain is electrical-like. One treatment for that, carbamazepine. Okay, you can get evoked-type pain or non-evoked pain, meaning you can do something that causes the pain or you do nothing and you're going to get the pain. So we're going to talk about six conditions, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, spinal cord injury, phantom limb pain, post-stroke pain syndrome, and minor traumatic brain injury. Okay, The definition, in general, of neuropathic pain, as you know, is an abnormality in the sensory system, the sensory nervous system. OK? Most common. This is most common neuropathies, I should say, are peripheral neuropathies, secondary to diabetes, the peripheral upper and lower extremity neuropathies. Pain is considered burning and so on. But this is not a central neuropathic pain, okay? This is in counter distinction, actually, to a central neuropathic type pain. So we'll start with multiple sclerosis. And for each group, I've tried to put some interesting pictures to explain what we're talking about. Here, you're seeing in the MRI scans the white lucencies. These are called MS. This is areas of demyelination. Okay, And why is that important? Because this creates spontaneous ectopic activity as well as crosstalk, which is ephaptic. And first, let's go into this. What causes? the problem in MS, okay? One of the first things that you need to know is that you get myelin reactive proteins and the myelin become activated, excuse me, the lymphocytes become activated and they move through the blood-brain barrier, okay? You have uh, migration of these activated T cells and lymphocytes and other cells across the blood-brain barrier, they form, cytokines, chemokines, other significant anti-inflammatories, or inflammatory rather, uh, types of cells which cause the myelin to disintegrate. Okay, you then get your demyelination and subsequent neuronal degeneration. And there's two ways of doing that. You have an inside-out model, as, uh, which you can see starts with axonal damage going to Walerian degeneration, you're left with just the cell body which is disintegrated, and then you have in the blood cells, your T cells, the activated T cells which are the outside in model, these come in through the blood brain barrier, create demyelination, axonal degeneration, and Walurian degeneration. So this is just a more complex way of looking at what we just discussed. So the Common types of pain, pain in MS is very frequent, as you all know. All of you, I'm I'm sure that you all treat MS. The form first, when you see a a 20 to 40-year-old patient who comes in with trigeminal neuralgia, that should alert you to the fact that this patient may have may have multiple sclerosis because in many cases this is a form first or the first indication of the disorder. Other types of pain that occur in MS patients, dysesthesias. This is aside from the, neuro, the central neuropathic pain. Dysesthesias, you can get CRIPS, complex regional pain syndrome, as you know. Lermit sign, where you press on the head and you'll get pain going down the spine you get painful tonic spasms. But again, these are all peripheral to the central neuropathic pain. And you notice pain in MS is common with a prevalence of 43 to 54%, depending on who you read, up to 86% of patients with MS will have pain. Here is a nice picture you can see. Again, we'll go here. You can see how the axons here are torn and this will give you spontaneous activity. Whereas here, in an area of demyelination, across these, neuro- these axons that are still in accordance, they're still long enough, you'll get a faptic transmission, which goes laterally, and that's called crosstalk. Okay, uh, Get down here, and that's over here, your crosstalk. So the central neuropath- neuropathic pain in MS is thought to be secondary to damage of the myelinated nerves in the central nervous system and propagated in two main ways. First, damage, you get ectopic and ephaptic transmission, as we just talked about. And secondly, there's a removal of the descending antinociceptive modulation for afferent A delta and C fibers. Okay, so essentially, it's the decreased descending pain, anti pain system that helps create the problem. Now in Parkinson's disease, the first slides I'm going to show you were from a study done in 2011 by the American Parkinson's, uh, Parkinson's Disease Association. It had an N of 247 patients, all of whom were 60 years or younger. So here they were asked a question, Do you have pain that accompanies or is a result of your Parkinson's symptoms? And so you can see here, this is more than 80% say yes. Have you ever been told that you have or been diagnosed with any of the following? So you look at the bottom, and you can see the significance of the diagnoses, including fibromyalgia, dystonia, uh, dysesthesias, degenerative discs, and so on. Is your pain relieved or improved by L-DOPA or Parkinsonian medications? You can see it's pretty close. Okay, You've got about, here about 56%, here about 48 to 50%. How would you rate your pain? This is important to us as clinicians because here's people, I don't have pain. Here it's uh, occasionally severe, maybe severe, severe most of the time. And that's 24 percent, and this is the severity, and this whole questionnaire is about central pain. So here's some more respondent information. Again, the n was 247 patients. Here, just so you, remember, this is a picture of normal. You can see the dark area here of the substantia nigra. Here's the red nuclei, the um, Aqueduct, the cerebral aqueduct going down to the fourth ventricle. And here you see what happens in Parkinson's disease. There's no darkness. The dopamine is totally gone. The dopaminergic system, here you see the substantia nigra, and this is the median forebrain bundle. You can see it goes up to the frontal, prefrontal cortex, and it goes down to the midbrain. Just to give you an idea here, what you can see, we'll come over here, is your substantia nigra, which is going to all these areas that are part of the limbic system, increasing pain. And you see there are other aspects. You see a red line going from here. So this is sort of it affects these areas. Okay? It affects the, the primary somatosensory cortex and the secondary somatosensory cortex. It also affects the insular cortex. Okay, And of course, down at the bottom is our friend, the spinal cord. So pain in Parkinson's disease, aside from central pain, you have pain attributable to various peripheral regions. You have motor symptoms that may be causing or increasing pain. And how do we know that? It's what happens when you use L-DOPA for the Parkinsonian patients. And it's the role of Parkinsonian pathophysiology, which we'll talk about in a minute. Parkinson's patients can produce or experience central neuropathic pain. They get stabbing, burning, lancinating, scalding types of pain, totally non-provoked in Areas that you wouldn't expect, including the abdomen, the face, the mouth, the genitalia, the anus, and the pelvis. Totally unprovoked. But this is the central neuropathic type of pain. Shostaski did a study, a very nice neurophysi... Whoops. Very nice neurophysiological study. Thank you. And what he found was that conduction... Changes showed that there really were signs of hyperalgesia in the central nervous system of Parkinson patients. Now, to put that in another context, those of you that know anything about migraine probably know, and I'm sure you all know this, that there's a question as to whether the migrainer brain is more active than a non-migranous brain. And so this would fit into what you would call a migraine brain having hyperalgesia. Okay. You have patients with a lack of habituation of sympathetic pseudomotor activity and responses to repetitive pain stimuli, okay? And that suggests abnormal control of pain secondary to autonomic issues. And these abnormalities are diminished transiently by L-dopa, and the key there is transiently. Okay? So when you see your Parkinson patients and they complain of pain, it doesn't hurt to increase the L-DOPA, but realize that it's a transient change. It's been shown that the pharmacological, uh, electrical, and surgical manipulation of these same areas in non-Parkinsonian patients don't have the same responses. Okay, the basal ganglion, it's felt, might be gates for the dopaminergic type of activity that causes the central neuropathic pain in Parkinsonian patients. This modulation occurs typically in the medial thalamus. And one of the things that you'll hear, we'll talk about, about all of these six, or six different pain syndromes is that the thalamus is at the root of all of them, particularly the medial thalamus, and more particularly, the VPN, the ventroposterior medial nuclei of the thalamus. Okay, thank you. So the the use of L-DOPA and injections of apomorphine, that's the second way that you can help these patients. Um, Again, it's transient, but you get some help. So the question, you did it. The question is, is this not possibly dopaminergically mediated pain? It's the only form of pain that anyone is aware of, to my knowledge that is secondary to pure dopaminergic stimulation. So now we'll talk about spinal cord injury. I'll preface this by saying spinal cord injury is one of the most difficult pain to try to ameliorate in any way, shape, or form. What are the causes of spinal, uh, spinal cord injury, first or falls? Okay, 47%, 42%, pardon me. Then you've got road traffic accidents, followed by sporting accidents, or falls, actually. And then trauma is 3%. Okay, So there's a number of reasons that you can get spinal cord injury, and not all of them have to do with somebody with violence or a motor vehicle accident. Now, when you rehab, again, let me go over here. The, um, there's spinal cord injury. There's five types of spinal cord injury looking at the uh, spinal cord injury association. Um, they have A, which is total spinal cord transection, through E, which is normal spinal cord. And so you have here incomplete spinal cord problems with B and C being more severe, than C and D. Okay, and you can see here how you can try to target and approach treatment. Again, this is the physiological rehab. This is not pain treatment. Okay, because what happens with spinal cord injury? The first thing that goes, depending on how or where on the spinal cord the injury occurs, is locomotion. Okay, locomotion is gone. So what you want to do here, where you have a complete injury over here, is you're going to look at compensatory types of processes. Okay, What sort of things can you use to help the patient walk? This is very important with our wounded warriors who come back. Um, you want to repair it if you can. There are actually some docs and there is some early literature on stem cells in the presence of spinal cord hemisection okay and whether or not they can help produce more closure and better rehabilitation results for these patients i just put this this slide in here so you can remember as you all know the motor and ascending red spinal cord columns here and the descending here and, no, I'm sorry. It's the other way. There's the red is descending, and here's your cortical spinal tracts, and there's two: the paleo and the neo. Okay, the old and the new spinal thalamic tract, which are ascending, and they're the most important things, as you'll see in the drawing in a moment. And here, just this—the purpose of this slide here—and I'll show it over here. You can see an corporal type of matrix that's surrounded by um, oligodendrocytes. It's surrounded by stem cells that are activated, and it's got immune cells inside this area. But more importantly, notice that over here, in, immediate, in after the injury, this is normal spinal cord, right here you see a couple of neurons, and the couple is just the drawing. And then you see that the axons here are broken, if you will, but here there's more axonal damage in the final lengthier problem with these patients. The more axonal damage, the less likely rehabilitation is to occur. Okay, so pain, as I told you after spinal cord injury, is very difficult to deal with. It can involve multiple areas of the brain. These patients typically experience central pain beginning And here's a key. It begins in over 60, up to 60% of them, over a month, even years later, after the injury, Okay, The The pain is typically felt at or below the level of the spinal cord injury. In some patients, in other patients, it can be above the area. You can have numbness. You can have pain. Okay, It depends on the patient, and again, it can take months before you determine what it is that patient is going to be experiencing. Again, the pain could be above or below the level of the spinal cord injury, which we talked about. There's a development of central sensitization, and this is one of the things, or with spinal cord injury, I'll give you one hint that we we all can do with these patients that can be helpful. Okay, with the development of central sensitization, you have dorsal horn neurons, of the dorsal horn neurons, they can create significant issues after a spinal cord hemisection. And this would be a logical reason for the development of both mechanical as well as thermal allodynia after a spinal cord injury. There's another more recent type of hypothesis that this is basically dendritic spine remodeling in the second-order wide dynamic range neurons. Okay, And what this does is shows the possibility of synaptic modeling and memory storage of how the limb was before, or how, excuse me, how the spinal cord was prior to the injury. You have spinal cord-induced synaptic potentiation, which is also... Very important for putative spinal memory mechanisms. Again, your brain remembers certain things about your spinal cord just as it does about a phantom limb after an injury. Other research indicates that chronic pain after spinal cord injury uh, appears to be associated with nociceptive primary afferent neurons. Basically, you have these PAFs, primary peripheral, primary afferent neurons, okay, which have persistent hyper-excitability and spontaneous activity in their peripheral branches, okay? And what happens to them? You have this constant information. It's very much like uh, wind-up, where you have peripheral constant C-fiber information into the brain creating central sensitization, Okay, that's wind-up. And this is essentially what you see with spinal cord injury. Gwack and in his group uh, indicates that spinal cord-induced uh, release, once you have a spinal cord injury, in the area and in the brain, you have release of glutamate. and What does glutamate uh, do? Glutamate destroys neurons. Essentially, it burns them out. It's one of the three main issues in brain injury that we'll talk about, you have significant gliopathy, which means pro-inflammatory cytokines, ATP, reactive oxygen species, neuropathic factors, neurotrophic factors, all of which in the central nervous system are combined to create what we call a gliopathy or significant glial dysfunction. Why is that important? It's because the use of a drug, minocycline, 100 milligrams Q12 can be helpful for a gliopathy. And that's not just for spinal cord injury. I'll call that out also for CRIPS, Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. There are some studies from the CRIPS Foundation being done right now looking at how actively uh, or how acutely minocycline can work. Nanfinerup did an excellent study indicating that chronic pain is present in about 70% of patients with spinal cord injury, OK? And chronic central neuropathic pain is 30 to 50%. So they have central pain, 70%, but 30 to 50% have central neuropathic pain. That's a large number. And again, this does, makes it much more difficult to deal with our wounded warriors. Nan Finnerup's Finnerup's, um, findings include evoked types of pain are more common in spinal cord injury patients with central pain. The lesions in the central gray matter in spinal cord injury patients are larger with central pain. And the spinothalamic tract lesions are equally common. Now, this is one of the hardest disorders except for one saving grace phantom limb pain, okay? Now, this is a humunculus. Look at this humunculus, and let me ask you, what's wrong with it? The humunculus, remember, is looking at the motor strip. It tells you what parts of the body are associated with what parts of the body, of the motor strip. Basically, if you look and I'll turn it here. You see the thumb, you see the hand, little ring, middle index, thumb, and the eye. However, in a patient who does not have a phantom limb, this should be connected to the mouth. Okay? And you know that if if you, and I'm sure you all know this, if you look at auras, okay, there are types of Migraine auras, where you get paresthesias that go up the arm, up to about here, and then start at the lip, and move to the middle of the mouth. Okay, so what you're seeing here is an abnormal humunculus, and we'll go into that a little further and later. And here you see the spinal thalamic tract coming up, and you see it's breaking into the midbrain, into the paleo and the neo spinal thalamic tract, and it goes into the thalamus, through the reticular system, into the thalamus, to the cortex, the sensory cortex. This is a functional MRI, and this is important. This is an amputee with phantom limb pain. The cortical representation of the mouth extends into the region of the hand and arm, and that you see here. and this is a patient with an amputation that doesn't have pain, and this is a normal patient. They're identical. Okay. Here, again, is a stump, and on that stump, typically, there is a neuroma. Neuroma is constantly giving um, spontaneous activity, which goes up through the spinal cord, through the uh, dorsal root ganglion into the substantia gelatinosa then decussates and then shoots up the problem with phantom limb pain it doesn't do it accurately the spinal cord changes what the brain sees what you see or where that that stump was connected to let's uh, to a hand okay what where that hand should have been if you look If you were to look here at this part of the spinal cord, you would see that it is not, the information is expanded. The spinal cord expands the range of where they thought, the, the brain and the spinal cord thought the information for that hand should be. So it then shoots up into the brain. It goes through, and again... It goes through and into the thalamus, okay, and up into the somatosensory cortex. And what happens is the brain misinterprets the information that's already misinterpreted. Here is an example, again, another functional MRI. With appropriate rehabilitation, what you can see here is the mouth, okay, or let me start back here. Here's the mouth, here's the hand, this is normal. Here you see the mouth has moved, and you see green outlines of where the brain is trying to relearn, and I'll show you how, where the hand should be. Okay. The problem is the brain doesn't want to know about painful hand movements. The brain wants to know, how do I move my hand and not hurt myself? Otherwise, you develop what's called movement allodynia, which we'll talk about in a bit typical factors relevant to the development of phantom limb pain noxious information noxious input to the limb that's constant a crush injury for instance okay development of cortical pain memory with enhanced excitability from the peripheral neurons okay amputation then occurs you then have reorganization of the amputation zone in the somatosensory cortex, and that's followed by selective cases of C fiber, uh, loss rather, of C fiber. You have random input from the stump neurons, okay, giving you um, spontaneous types of electrical activity. You have abnormal charges or changes at the dorsal root ganglion, and finally, sympathetic activation. And that's the most difficult to handle. This treatment here is probably the best we have. This is called mirror box therapy. You see a mirror here, and this is a V over here. You can see the bottom here. Here's a mirror, and then you have a piece of wood here, and the amputated limb, goes into this area here, so the patient can't see it, and what the patient sees, what the brain sees, and it's very interesting because here the brain is doing something that you're not expecting it to do. The brain is looking at this limb, which is normal, and this limb, which is the picture of this limb, and saying, my God, I'm looking at two limbs, and neither of them hurt. So you do things with this hand in rehab, and the brain sees the changes over there. And what happens here, uh, okay, here's the normal limb. Here's the picture. And the brain sees what happens when this limb moves. This limb moves, and the brain says, wow, I'm watching both limbs move without pain. So there's a, still a lot of questions about phantom limb pain. What induces this, Okay, and why can patients Feel a limb that is amputated traumatically or non-traumatically having torsion. Okay, it's not like they're feeling a, or they're feeling a leg or a foot or a hand the way. It, okay, I'm just resting my hand and that's how I'm feeling it. No, they can feel it in torsion. They can feel it in spasm. Okay, the brain perceives the last thing, particularly with a, a traumatic amputation the brain will perceive that amputation and how that limb is in an abnormal situation. Okay, and the brain is capable, again, of learning that it's okay to move this arm because it doesn't hurt, even because that arm's gone, but because it's watching you. The brain is watching, and it's like it's on autopilot. You're not making the brain learn that. The brain is doing it by itself. Okay. Now, the incidence of phantom limb pain post-traumatically or with peripheral vascular disease is 60 to 80%. Stump pain <clears throat> is seen in over 50% of the patients with an amputation, be it traumatic or surgical. Okay, over 50%. No, I can't because there's no really good papers on that to my knowledge. It wouldn't surprise me, but I found a paper that can differentiate that. Just like when we're talking about headache, blast-induced TBI and headache is different somehow from post-traumatic, minor traumatic brain injury. So, phantom limb pain does not occur post-limb amputation by itself, you can have phantom breast pain after a mastectomy. And if you enucleate an eye, if there's a a cancer, and you take the eyeball out, you can have phantom eye pain. Phantom limb pain may be at least partially explained when you look at mixed signals from the brain. And this is an actual patient of mine who lost his foot. Okay, this was surgically amputated, and he still felt the foot, but because of the way the spinal cord changed things, the the rostral information placed the feeling of the patient's foot in his nose. Okay, so if he scratched his nose, he'd feel his nose scratching, but he'd also feel that foot being scratched. Okay, Now, the problem is, this was a lucky patient. He didn't have pain. But you can see pain very easily in this tangled web of what happens when the spinal cord tries to interpret what it used to feel, but the nerves aren't there. And what happens when you amputate either surgically or traumatically and you do a cross-section of the spinal cord? There's a hole. Wallerian degeneration causes the axons going up the spinal cord to die. You actually get a hole, and that persists all the way up to the brain. Now, aside from pain amp- after amputation, the majority of patients with an amputation report feeling volitional control. They feel that they can move their limb unless it's caught in a spasm, Okay, then they can't, or they'll tell you that they can't feel, they can feel pain, they can feel the spasm, but they can't voluntarily cause movement in that limb. Okay, and there's a question about the memories of that pain prior to amputation that can be associated with the limb positioning and how the brain remembers how that limb was just before the amputation. Now, phantom pain, locally, Okay, peripherally, can be burning, tingling, cramping, shocking, lancinating, or parasthetic. This is different than just, this is in addition to the central aspects of the pain. Because remember, when you have the dying back of axons and neurons, once you get to the top, to the brain, what you're going to feel is going to be, for the most part, in over 50% of the patient's pain. Now you have both peripheral and central changes that take place post-amputation. Sympathetic efferents interact with sensory afferents, and that modulates afferent activity such as spontaneous pain. You can't stop that. This is the way the central nervous system is built. So spontaneous pain in patients with phantom limb pain is part of the ticket to to admission. If they have phantom limb pain, they will have spontaneous pain. Changes in neural processing are found, typically more proximally, and at the dorsal root ganglion and at the dorsal horn, in the substantia gelatinosa, in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Okay, the induced central sensitization That's secondary to all that leads to spontaneous pain in the phantom limb, as well as touch-evoked phantom limb pain. An additional component, another problem that you see, is secondary to supraspinal changes that are responsible for phantom phenomenon, and these appear to include cortical reorganization. In other words, it's not just enough that there's plasticity in the brain such that Remember that picture of the mouth moving closer to where it should, where the hand should have been when you're teaching the patient how to move a hand painlessly using mirror box therapy. Okay? Long-lasting input from the limb and the cortical pain memory enhanced excitability and reorganization of the somatosensory zone contribute to this area of pain. This is a very dis- difficult disorder to treat, as I told you. There's multiple medications that I've tried and that are in the literature. You can look at uh, antidepressants, OK, NSRIs, anticonvulsants, mexilatine, which we'll talk about how to use, opioids, NMDA receptor antagonists, clonazepam, and others. There is no golden way of treating this patient, these patients. Non-medical treatment, particularly rehab, is mandatory for these patients. Okay? It's one thing to give a pill. It's something else to do rehab, such as something as simple as the mirror box therapy. You need to do that to help your patient. Now, what you all know about, mostly, is the central post-stroke pain, or what used to be called the syndrome of Dejerine and Roussi. And we'll go into that in a moment, because it's not what most people think. Neither is the next slide. With almost every patient I've ever seen with post-stroke central pain, you have a myofascial pain syndrome with active trigger points. Here's a picture of 40 of them. I'm sorry that this is very small, but you can see the color you can see where the pain is in general, and then you can see the overlay of myofascial pain and trigger points. This is important because part of the evaluation of these patients has to be, has to include the trigger points in the myofascial pain because you have to deal with that prior to dealing with the central pain. Here's a functional MRI, okay, with lesion mapping. The top, you can ignore the top and the bottom, look in the middle, and you'll see significant changes in central post-stroke pain in the thalamus, more on the left. Or actually, it's the right. If you look at that picture, the left side is actually the right. Here is a subtraction analysis of some lesions of patients. What is commonly being done now is multiple patients are looked at. Thank you for opening the door, it's really hot in here. Uh, They take a number of patients with a particular diagnosis, do functional MRIs, and look at where are all the changes in each brain. And then they sum them, They, they put them on top of each other. Okay, so you can get a better idea of where in the brain are the changes occurring. And here you can see significantly changes in all aspects of the thalamus, particularly in the posterior medial parts of the thalamus. This is a functional MRI. And again, remember, this is the right side. This is the left. And you can see the area that's redder on the left, or it's the right side of the brain. Actually, this is the region where you have the most abnormal processing. And it's contralateral, to where the pain is. And one of the real issues of this is why you can't help this pain with the medications we're used to using. This is diffusion tensor imaging. This is relatively new. I don't know, how has anybody here ever seen one of these? Or ordered one of these? This looks at neuronal tracts. It looks at how water flows. It's three colors, okay? Red goes from left to right. Blue goes from up and down. And green goes from inf- uh, one side to the other. I'm sorry, anterior to posterior. Here is a patient with minimal conscious state. And you can see the controls. This is normal. And you can see on this side, the left, really the right side of the brain, it's moth-eaten. Okay, so you can see in this minimally conscious patient the loss of tracts, neuronal tracts, in that part of the brain, secondary to the trauma or whatever caused the minimally conscious state of this patient. This is both a functional MRI, just to show you, and here's the dreaded arrow sign, looking at an abnormality in the thalamus, which you can also see in this functional MRI. Here. And the functional MRI here. Fiber tracking in the thalamocortical tracts again, using diffusion tensor imaging, you see that the uh, tracts on the left are more moth-eaten, if you will compared to this side, here and here. Now, one of the most important things is the fact that patients with this syndrome don't have new opioid receptors contralateral to the pain. So using opioids to try to stop the pain is an exercise in futility. Okay, there are no opioids, and we'll go into why. Dejerine and Roussi, when they first talked about this syndrome, talked about hemiplegia, hemiataxia, hemisteriognosis, persistent paroxysmal pain, uh, superficial and deep pain, as well as choreoathetoid movements. Okay? And that all got boiled down to post-stroke pain on an area contralateral to where the stroke actually occurred. And why is this? that this occurs. First, some numbers. incidence, two to 8% of CVA patients. Up to 25% of patients with lateral medullary infarction, or what's called Wallenberg syndrome. Okay, it's broadly defined as central neuropathic pain. Secondary to lesions and dysfunctions in various parts of the central nervous system. Again, mostly in the VPM, the ventral posterior medial nuclei of the thalamus. Pain is described as burning, scalding, freezing, and and burning and scalding, or freezing and burning. Early diagnosis is fine, but sometimes the pain doesn't start for months, and occasionally years after a stroke. That may be secondary to slow decrease in what nerve functionality that they had on that side, contralateral to the stroke, but, or to the pain, but that's what happens. The onset of the pain, as I told you, can be delayed for months to years. 40 to 60% of these patients, the onset of their centrally related post-stroke pain occurs more than a month. So it's over 60% of these patients. Sensory abnormalities are also associated abnormalities with these. In other words, if you take something, let's say a glass of warm or cool water and put it on the skin, patient won't feel warm or cool, he, will, he or she will feel paresthesias or other forms of pain. Because the entire sensory structure of the brain is malaligned. Allodynia is found in 50 to 70% of these patients, hyperalgesia and dysesthesia in the same percentage. The evaluation of these patients are more complex because one of the issues is after a significant stroke, you may have to deal with a patient who has cognitive issues, who has problems speaking, aphasia, expressive or not. You may have to, and these same patients will have depression, anxiety, sleep disorder, and you need to look at, do a history, and look at myofascial issues, look at musculoskeletal issues in general, as well as the issues of pain. Locations of the lesions have been demonstrated to be referable all over the brain. Okay, again, ventroposterior medial thalamus is most important to these patients. While damage to this thalamic tract, or the spinal cortical pathway occurs frequently, it's a necessary complication or condition to CPSP to occur. CPSP is mostly associated with a single lesion, in spite of what you see. And typically, depending on the size of the stroke, It can affect a part of the face. It can affect the whole face, a limb, or the entire side of the body. Studies using MRI and PET scans have demonstrated anatomical lesions with associated informations, and there's no specific way of determining how the lesion really gives you what you find in terms of pain. It's different. And each time, even though you have two patients with identical pictures, PET scans or functional MRIs, what you see in terms of pain can be highly different. No reason why. One group believes this is a uh, disinhibition association hypothesis of CPSP, which suggests that there's an an excessive response, but at the same time, that excessive response doesn't have anything to try to stop it or to slow it down. It's also thought that injury to cool signaling lateral phalamic pathway disinhibits nociceptive uh, medial phalamic pathways and this precludes and this produces uh, both burning cold and ongoing issues of pain and cold allodynia. you got to remember that allodynia secondary to central sensitization is always part of the problem with these patients. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that you get with these patients is called movement allodynia, where a patient, if the stroke is here, can't move the right upper extremity, secondary to pain. They'll lock it like this. They won't be able to move it. And these patients will, secondary to sympathetic activity, develop redness, thin skin, essentially the picture with allodynia of CRIPS they will develop a complex regional pain syndrome on top of the um, CPSP. So this is not a good thing to have. Sympathetic dysfunction is peripheral. It is not part of the central peripheral pain. Or excuse me, the central pain. Now, minor brain injury. Here's a picture of TBI. This is a very young child, and you can see and what you're looking at is the size of the ventricles. This is what's called the ventricle-brain ratio. And you can see early, with, and with mild TBI, you can see small ventricles, and as the disease goes from mild to moderate to severe, the size of the ventricles increases, the white areas increase, and you see the same below. But only here you see hemosiderin or remnants of blood, in there. There are three problems with brain injury. The first is axonal shearing. That's what causes the white matter changes here that you're seeing. The second is the blood-brain barrier opens. It can be open for up to a month. That makes it more difficult if you see a patient a week after an injury and you examine them and they say, okay, doc, you know, uh, what are you finding? The real answer is you don't know till the end of that month. Because you still have leaching of neurotoxic chemicals as well as proalgetic chemicals through the blood brain barrier for that entire month period. Okay, the third thing that happens is increased glutamate, which burns out neuronal cells, okay, and kills a number of cells. This is one of the reasons, aside from the axonal shearing, that you see cognitive deficits in these patients. Here's moderate TBI, and you can see here, this is a normal patient, or a control patient, and here you can see the enormous ventricular brain, or ventricle-to-brain ratio for this patient. And here, again, very interesting, this is an MRI of a patient two years prior to an injury, a head injury, and you can see here, the VBR, or the ventricle-to-brain ratio, is relatively small. It gets smaller immediately after the injury because of edema, and it stays that way throughout the first six months. And then you see the VBR increasing to 2 and then to 3. Normal VBR is 1 to 1.5. Okay, here you see a structurally functionally connectivity. This is, pardon me. Okay. This is, again, a um, tensor image over here, and you can see in the back, moth-eaten type of picture where the injury occurred. Okay, so in these patients, it's the minor traumatic brain injury patients that feel the pain and feel headache. The key is not central neuropathic pain in these patients, though it occurs in about 10 to 20%. The key is headache. And the headache is different for a reason that I can't tell you why because nobody knows. Nobody's ever looked at it. Patients with MTBI after a blast, okay, soldiers who are victims of being next to an explosion, okay, will develop MTBI. They'll develop headache, and their headache is anterior, whereas in the civilian population with trauma, okay, with a slip and fall, with a motor vehicle accident, with um, a, a blow to the head from a mugger, the headache, the constant chronic headache is occipital. Why that is, nobody's ever looked at the difference between a blast injury and a non-blast brain injury. So uh, the persistence of chronic headache is defined by six months, uh, after six months it's chronic quality of the headache pain in these patients is more prickling, throbbing, and pounding, and basically you don't see this pain in the moderate to severe headache patients, moderate to severe brain injury patients with headache. TBI can lead directly to headaches or worse than existing headaches in the minor traumatic brain injury group. Literature, again, as I indicated, is scarce comparing blast injury to non-blast injury headache or other types of problems. So what is the pathoediology of this central pain syndrome? We'll go right to the source here. And you can see right here, um, here's your thalamus, okay? Here's your uh, somatosyn- uh, your Hello, medial lemniscus, the... Um, Spinal reticular tract and the spinal thalamic tract, they all go into the thalamus, and you see the thalamus moving right up to the sensory cortex, the somatosensory cortex. It also then goes down through the other aspects of the central nervous system, and you have massive feedback that goes down through the brain and into the spinal cord. So how do you treat it? And this is what everybody needs to know, first line, in my opinion, does not include opiates. With post-stroke pain, opiates won't help you. With other types of phantom limb, of uh, spinal cord injury, of MS pain, you can try an opioid but not as a first type or a first order drug. I would recommend a TCA, amitriptyline is first order, a gabapentinoid okay, an alpha-2-delta-type drug. Lamotrigine, there's a number of papers that show lamotrigine is helpful in patients with uh, central neuropathic pain syndrome. Topical lidocaine for peripheral pain, and you may consider IR opioids if you can get the patient to go to rehab for the myofascial issues. And it hurts, so sometimes I'll give them, because you don't want to give somebody with... uh, particularly post-stroke, you don't want to give them, and they're the ones with most of the myofactories, something that will confuse them. But a Vicodin, an hour before rehab, can be helpful and essentially enable them to come in and receive appropriate rehabilitative treatment. My second-line drugs include second-order, a second type of ACM or ADM. Okay, polypharmacy is a must for these patients. Third-line management are your opioid analgesics, your ER opioid analgesics. maxillatine, which, as you know, is a oral antiarrhythmic. And, the, and I'll get to how to use that in a minute. Intrathecal baclofen, with or without clonidine. Baclofen is a GABA-B agonist. And IV lidocaine. Okay, now, IV lidocaine... Should only be given when the patient is in the hospital, okay, suited up with, I, what I do is I'll put them in a uh, EKG situation where it's a three-hour three EKG, okay. And I'll do that. I'll give them, we'll put a half hour just getting a baseline. We'll give them the IV lidocaine. And then for an hour to two hours afterwards, continue the medication. To continue the ECG. Okay. At that point, if there's no problem, it's pretty safe to go to mexilatine, which is the oral antiarrhythmic. Okay. That's the way I do it. Other people don't bother doing it that way. They'll just start the mexilatine. Mexilatine is a good drug for thalamic pain. So. Central pain syndrome is a cancer of the spirit, as somebody has said. Essentially, quality of life goes right down the toes. There's nothing you can do about it, and the patients don't get help. If oral medications don't help within six months, you may want to try uh, a neuromodulation. The problem with neuromodulation is threefold. You can do cortical stimulation, you can do deep brain stimulation, and you can do kind of spinal cord Uh, stimulation. The latter, spinal cord stimulation, only works for a year. Okay, Deep brain stimulation typically doesn't work. There's one case of a patient who had deep brain stimulation, had the controller at home, and kept increasing the degree of electrical stimulation. And what happens if you increase electrical stimulation of the brain? You create kindling and this is the first patient that I know of <clears throat> who developed first a focal and it went into a generalized grand mal seizure. He essentially created a seizure by kindling a seizure disorder. Okay, so he was taken, the electrodes were taken out of his brain. Intrathecal baclofen, again, with clonidine is a good thing to do. Neuroablation, I've told you what I think about that. Most common first-line drug, again, is amitriptyline. Other drugs include opioids, EIR in the initial type of uh, treatment. Anticonvulsants. Lamotrigine has, at last count, 18 papers, I think, showing that it is useful in chronic neuropathic pain. A Cochrane review, however, reviewed them all and said, it's not true, Lamotrigine doesn't do anything for central neuropathic pain. So... If there is a drug of choice, okay, it would be pregabalin, okay, Or the gabapentinoids, because I'd also use gabapentin. Now, how that works, we'll get into in a second. But let me go back and tell you about your, this is what I always keep in my pocket as my Hail Mary treatment, if nothing else works. This is Sweets Cocktail. I went to Northwestern where, Dr. Sweet, the neurosurgeon, was in the 30s and 40s. Basically, this is, it's got a very narrow therapeutic range. So you want to give it very carefully. 75 milligrams of amitriptyline. I build up 25 to 50 to 75, and then start Stelazine, okay, first generation antipsychotic, one TID, one milligram TID, okay. In my experience, I've used it on about 30 patients and 85% of them had a positive response after everything else failed. The reason I save this for last is when you're using Stelazine, you're putting yourself in the position and the patient in the position of the development of tardive dyskinesias, which is something you don't want to happen. So you've got to make sure that the patient as well as the patient's caretakers understand that this may help their pain, but this may also cause other problems. Now, I won't even go into how does the gabapentinoids go right now. Basically, they're alpha-2-delta subunits that work in the voltage-gated calcium channels. Okay, And it's helped if there is protein kinase C, but basically, I like gabapentin better than pre-gab because it's got a much more benign side effect profile. The issue is the higher you go, you can go up to 3,600 milligrams a day, but the PK decreases as you go above 1,800. So about 1,800 is probably your best bet. You can go higher, but the patient really gets less out of it because of PK issues. So carbamazepine is the drug of choice in my experience for lancinating pain, okay? electrical-like shooting pain. Mexiletine is very useful for thalamic pain. NSRIs are extremely useful, and I will combine the NSRIs with anticonvulsants. Intravenous lidocaine by itself can be helpful. If you do an hour or three intravenous presentation with the patient hooked up to ECG, so you're getting full knowledge of what's going on in the cardiovascular system, it can be helpful for a period of time, after which you need to repeat it unless you can transfer them to the oral maxillotine. Intravenous naloxone was not helpful. And intrathecal baclofen, as I told you, with or without clonidine, is helpful. Stimulation of the primary motor cortex is interesting. It hasn't, most of the literature shows that it can or can't be helpful. It's really uh, nebulous, except now they're doing uh, magnetic stimulation. And if you use contralateral magnetic stimulation, making sure you hit the M1 or the major uh motor strip, you can get good pain relief in some patients, not in all. It is not there's no panacea here, unfortunately. What I'm giving you is how I treat and the combination of what the books say is a good thing to do. Okay. Now there's only one published study or one published statement and that was dated 2007 by Bob Dworkin, who notes essentially the same drugs I do for phase one or, or first-line drugs. But he said opioids are the second-line drugs. And then further, uh, anticonvulsants, antidepressants would be third-line. I don't agree with that. But other surgical treatments or surgical treatments, cordotomy, DREZ lesions, dorsal root zone lesions, thalmotomy, cortical and subcortical ablations. Okay, This we went over. Again, there's a paucity of opioid receptors in the brain contralateral to the CPSP, so why give opioids? What it'll do if the pain is on this side, you have marked diminution of mu opioid receptors on this side, but if you're giving opioids, it'll affect this side of the brain and the patient can still overdose with no change in their pain. Polypharmacy, as I said, is mandatory. Minocycline for gliopathy, for CRIPS and spinal cord injury, is very useful, 100 milligrams Q12, as I told you. There are some people that feel the use of stimulants in these patients may be helpful. Dextroamphetamine, methylphenidate, uh, modafinil, that's what the last one should be, and phenteramine. Um, and medications for sleep, I would use TCA's. TCA's are the first drug, amitriptyline. If they're taking amitriptyline, you want them to take it at night. Of course, you're going to look at the age because the anticholinergic effects, particularly for the over 65 crowd, are not things that you want to play with. Okay? You may want to look at something like doxepin, which is not as anticholinergic but still is significantly anticholinergic. You don't want to mix benzos, as you know, with uh, opiates. New black box warning there. Yes, ma'am. Basically, stimulants are helpful because they stop, um, they stop uh, sympathetic overactivity. Okay. I'm sorry? It decreases sympathetic overactivity. Sympathetic overactivity can increase pain. Okay. Okay. So it's a secondary process. So the biggest and best way of treatment is not with drugs. It's with biopsychosocial care. You need to find. And you know, frankly, in this day and age, if you have a patient and you're in Wyoming or someplace, wherever, you'd send it to an interdisciplinary program such as that at RIC. Rehab Institute of Chicago, part of Northwestern. It may take, no matter what drugs you use, if it's an ACM, an anticonvulsant or antidepressant, it may take three to six weeks to wean the patient up to an appropriate dose. One of the questions that you always want to ask patients is, uh, what drugs have you been on in the past? This has nothing to do with the topic we're talking about. But if they say, "Oh yeah, I've been on um, carbamazepine," your job then is to say, "How much for how long?" And they'll tell you, "You know, I took 200 milligrams once a day for uh, two weeks. So did that mean that they really had a trial of carbamazepine?" No, it does not. So some people look at hormones. They'll test for uh, testosterone of all these. Testosterone is the one that I'm more concerned about. So while you're taking that three to six-week period to wean a patient up, you may want to use IR pain meds if it's not a CPSP or if it's not a spinal cord. Okay, so questions. I've typically used it for three to four weeks and then, and then I stop it, yes. And by that time, either the patient has shown that they've decreased, they've had decreased pain because by stopping the gliopathy, you stop pro-inflammatory and pro chemicals in the brain. So in three or four weeks, you will have seen whether or not there's been a success. You may, if there is a success... And it's gone down, let's say, two points on an NRS, you may want to continue for another couple of weeks, see what happens. It's not going to hurt the patient. Would that be an acute injury or chronic That would be the, uh, a spinal cord injury um, starting in the first month. I would do it in the first month. First month? Yes. Yes. Good question question was if we're resorting to opioids what about dipentadol uh, methadone or levorphanol i like levorphanol problem is trying to get it okay levorphanol does everything that thepentadol does but it also is an nmda receptor antagonist and overall i think it's a good drug um, i always start with ir opiates while i'm building I'm raising the dose of uh, anticonvulsants and antidepressants to where they should be. At that point, and as I said, it could be three to six weeks, I giving. I have been giving them, if appropriate, IR meds. At that point, I'll switch to a LA med, long-acting opioid. And it can, depends on the patient. Okay, Some patients, uh, you breathe the word OxyContin. I personally don't like OxyContin but um, you breathe the word and the patient says, I don't want to get addicted, I'll, I'll keep my pain, or Levorphanol, or Depentadol. It all depends on what you and the patient decide. The issue about methadone is you or whoever the doctor is needs to know and have used methadone successfully for years before you try it on one of these folk. I agree with you, and I'd rather use a mixed drug like that than a pure mu agonist. But sometimes, when you're already giving them anticonvulsants and antidepressants, you're already increasing norepinephrine, so you really don't care that tepentadol is keeping norepinephrine because you're giving them uh, NS uh, diloxetine, for instance. Yeah. No, it is not. You can try. Okay. I have found that about 50% get help, 50% do not. Okay. And I stop because one of the issues is you're trying to treat the Parkinson's at the same time you're trying to stop the pain, but the whole thing's about function. And if you can't get them functional with their Parkinson's disease, why give them more opiates? As I told you, most of these patients, when you bump up the L-dopamine, will get a bump, decreased pain, but transiently. Same with intravenous apomorphine. I have not seen anything written about retigatine. OK? And that's something that you may want to consider. He said that the spinal cord works for a year. about a year. I mean, once it's the spinal cord stimulator, you've done a trial, it works, you put in a stimulator, you put in the stimulator in the abdomen, basically after a year, they lose effectiveness. I don't know why. Okay? I truly don't because I can't picture uh, tolerance to an electrical stimulation. Okay? I'm sorry? Yes, sir. For the OK, the gliopathy that I talked about with spinal cord injury is also seen with criPS. That's why you use the same drug for the same problem. Again, as I told this gentleman over here, I'd keep it over here, excuse me I would keep it on for about a month to see if there's a diminution in pain. If there is, I'd pardon me, I'd extend it to six weeks, maybe eight. 100 milligrams, Q12. Yes, sir. Yes. However, being that it's off-label, I'm not talking about it. (laughs) But, yeah, what he said, something to consider. I mean, they're using ketamine for 15 other things right now, as you know. So, wouldn't wait as they say. I disagree with that. Okay, I think I believe what you do. I'd rather use long-acting. And I'm not so sure about opioid hypersensitivity in humans. It's seen in animals, but there's no real good papers that show it in humanoids. There's somebody behind you. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. Yes. It wouldn't hurt. You're not doing anything that's going to change anything physiologically, but if you can teach some or do some rehab, it doesn't hurt. I do three to six sessions and see if there's any change. If there is, even a little, I do a full tract. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist. I believe it is. Okay, and actually, people are now using Namenda and um, some other drugs that are NMDA receptor antagonists for migraine because there is, memantine seems to decrease um, cortical-spreading depression. So that's something that's. has been... Is it preventative or an I'm sorry? No, it's a preventative. It's a preventative. It's not going to abort a migraine. Well, different story. Any other questions? No, then I thank you all for sticking it out. It's a tough lecture.